Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. It's 8.09 in the Twin Cities. Well, it has been another very busy week in the news cycle. Uh, One of the themes that has continued uh, throughout the week is President Trump and his concern about news media coverage. Uh, It all sort of began, I think, this latest chapter with Trump tweeting out uh, on Sunday morning uh, a clip that he apparently had found on Reddit or that originated on the uh, social media site Reddit uh, that showed from an old clip of Trump's appearance uh, on a WWE show of Trump wrestling uh, what actually apparently was originally Vince McMahon back in 2007, but CNN was superimposed over his face, so it looked like the president was beating up CNN. Now there's a new video out there on social media that the president's son, uh, Donald Trump Jr., has posted with the president shooting uh, out a, a jet from out of the sky with a CNN logo over superimposed over it. Meanwhile, CNN came back with a story in which they uh, – reveals sort of the source of this video without naming the source and did it in a very unusual fashion, uh, suggesting that they might reveal the source if the source continued to, uh, you know, put these kinds of things out there in public. Joining me right now is somebody who I have turned to for for many years, but also especially in uh, recent months to try and sort through this heated uh, back and forth between uh, the president and the news media is Jane Kirtley, Professor Jane Kirtley of the Scylla Center at the University of Minnesota. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Esme. All right. Um, it doesn't – it just keeps getting a little crazier, doesn't it? You know, it, it is beyond belief to me that we are engaging in this kind of back and forth at a time when I would think that there are crises that would command the president's attention. But – you know, he declared the media the enemy of the people. He has been on the warpath with CNN for quite some time, although I noticed a story in the Washington Post this morning pointed out that in the context of this continuing debate about what actually happened in uh, the president's meeting with Vladimir Putin, he was actually pointing to CNN to support his story. So as somebody said, you know, if, if he agrees with it, it's, it's great. And if it's, he doesn't, it's fake news. And this is just another manifestation of that. All right. There's been some, you know, even some discussion about whether or not Twitter actually has, um, certain sort of bylaws or standards that that it says it requires its users to adhere to. The problem with Twitter, though, is that they have been criticized for a very long time, a very long time, for not adhering to those. And, you know, these kinds of concerns extend to things, you know, far completely not involved with the president, uh, concerns about, you know, terrorists using the site, uh, bullies using the site. Uh, what are your and the president actually has defended his use of Twitter, saying it's not presidential; it's quote modern day presidential. Uh, a lot of discussion that, that this this tweet involving the video with the CNN logo superimposed on it has gotten, I think, more retweets than any other. I mean, hundreds of thousands of retweets. What are your thought thoughts about that? And there are some who say, well, this 
is suggestive of, of violence towards the news media. Others say, no, that's ridiculous. It's obviously just a, a satire. Well, you know, I I am a big supporter of freedom of speech, and I always hesitate to start that way because when you follow that with a qualifier, it seems so hypocritical. My point here would be that I would accept the notion that this is satirical uh, in the hands of the individual who originally created it, but the president chose, for whatever reason, to retweet it. So, you know, it, it belongs to him now. And I don't, I don't think, I am sorry, maybe he calls it modern presidential. I don't. To suggest that uh, fighting the news media, wrestling it to the ground is an appropriate thing for the president to do, especially given what happened uh, with the congressman out in Montana doing the same thing to a reporter when he was running for office. Um, yeah, there was know, a congressman I, who was running for um, office in Mon- Montana who actually attacked exactly. a reporter exactly. and eventually you apologize that 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 congressman was in fact though the man who was running was in fact elected in a special exactly. election. He he was, and you know I I think that sometimes people don't realize that um, these kinds of actions have ramifications way beyond the United States. In countries that are autocracies, like Russia, where journalists are frequently physically attacked and murdered. I, you know, I, it's fine for President Trump to disagree with CNN. He can call them fake news if he chooses to. That doesn't bother me. But this kind of symbolic uh, dismembering of the press, uh, coupled with his incendiary commentary, I think it's, it is distinctly unpresidential, and it bears no relationship to what I think uh, the chief executive of this, of this country should be doing. Let's talk about CNN because they've had some – it's separate from this. Well, I suppose you can't really separate from this, but they've had uh, uh, some bumps here in the road. They had to basically retract a story that was uh, a one-source anonymous story, which is something that I didn't think people did anymore, um, about one of the president's um, you know, supporters and advisors. Uh, and then they also had a problem with how they handled the reporting on this. Your thoughts about how CNN is kind of dealing with this? Well, I think there are a couple of different issues here. Um, the the one source story that they had to retract, I mean, that's a journalistic sin as far as I'm concerned. You are really making yourself very vulnerable if you rely on a single source. Anonymous source. Anonymously. And, well, even not anonymously, but certainly anonymously. And um, in this era where the media are so subject to criticism for manufacturing and fabricating things, it's it's just not a good idea to do it. And it's I, But I will give CNN credit. They retracted, they corrected, uh, which is more than many other so-called news sites will will do. That doesn't excuse it, but I'm saying at least they owned up to it, which is not always the pattern these days. As far as they're dealing with the individual who allegedly created the original video, I think it's important to bear in mind that, that this individual is not a source of theirs. He is a news subject. And I think it was unfortunate that CNN uh, basically said, we know who you are, we could report it, but we won't as long as you promise to be good in the future. I don't think that... Yeah, I thought it was just bizarre. It was bizarre. That's not the role of the media to try to police people's future conduct. It's one thing to say, based on your past track record, we're not going to rely on you because we know you're a serial liar. That's one thing. But to go forward and say... If you don't behave, we're going to do this. It, you know, it's it's either newsworthy or it's not. It's either worth telling or it's not. It's either a legitimate matter of public interest that outweighs privacy and safety concerns or it's not. 
I think CNN should own that and not play these kinds of games. Right. And and for those of you who, who may not understand the full story here, so I think most people have seen the video that the president tweeted out last Sunday. Well, it turns out that he didn't make that video. The The origin of that video is that it was first made by somebody, uh, this is what CNN reported, uh, who was using Reddit, which is uh, another form of social media that has these sort of message boards and people of like minds. It was a bunch of Trump supporters and they put, you know, one user put made up this video and put it on Reddit. The president apparently retweeted it. CNN went, because I think it is newsworthy, did, did the president go through a little graphics program and make up this video? I think that would be a, a News a interest. Real story. Yes, yeah. Absolutely. Well, he didn't. He apparently this apparently came from Reddit. There's no denial from the uh, White House on this. But what the way CNN reported it, they said, well, this person who, who put together this video of Trump beating up the CNN uh, she has a history of anti-Semitic tweets and or uh, anti-Semitic posts on on Reddit and other sort of you know disparaging posts on Reddit. But they said we're not going to name him. Uh, but if he act, behaves badly in the future, I mean, this is the exact wording, we will name him, which I, I just – I thought it was the strangest thing. The only thing I could think of was that – unless it was a minor maybe, but there was no mention of that. Well, there was actually for a while a story going around that it was a 15-year-old kid and some of the alt-right uh, sites you know, honed in on that and said this is outrageous that CNN would, as they put it, dox, that is, publish information about uh, an anonymous poster. But the story now apparently is that this individual is not a minor. He's a guy that apparently lives in Tennessee. He's in his 40s. Um, in any event, I mean, who knows? But I just keep going back to my original question, which is, did CNN think this was newsworthy? I think it, it was a newsworthy story to find out where this came from. And I can't imagine CNN was the only news organization that was trying to figure out who had done it. Um, I think that's a legitimate story. But this gamesmanship of if you behave the way we expect you to in the future, we won't reveal your name. And people are calling it extortion and blackmail. And, and that's ridiculous. That's not it doesn't rise to that level. But I think it's not an appropriate thing for a news organization to do. Right. And and so anyway, but a lot of people did go on uh, Twitter and, and call it just that. Um, right. In terms of, um, you know, the continuing sort of showdown or stare down between uh, the president and, and the news media, I mean, where do you see this headed? I mean, it just seems to continue to escalate. Well, it not only escalates, it just gets more and more bizarre. I mean, and I, I, I'm sure everybody is listening to this show knows that many presidents have had difficult relationships with the press. There is nothing new in that phenomenon. But President Trump seems to be uniquely unsuited to handle the press as the president of the United States it traditionally has. That is, you can have an adversarial relationship. You can certainly disagree, but there's a fundamental respect in the case of the press for the office and in the case of the president for the institution of the press. And and I don't see that with President Trump. He genuinely seems to categorize the press as either they're either on for him or they're against him. And if what they're reporting is something that doesn't go with his narrative, then they are clearly against him and that makes them fake news. And what is so disturbing to me, and, and I have to think it probably bothers you too, is that many of his supporters just 
eat this up and take it as a given that what he's saying is true and what the press is saying is false. Now, you know, Trump didn't invent the situation, but I think he is exploiting it in a masterful way. You know, one of the ironies here, of course, is that uh, the Hillary Clinton campaign was extremely critical, and, and others have been critical, too, of how the mainstream press, including the cable press, including CNN, basically gave President Trump a pa- or then candidate Trump a pass and would just basically air a lot of his rallies unedited because they are were so you know uh, it was the the showmanship was there that factor and that they were so unpredictable and and so they just thought well let's put the Trump rally on where they didn't put you know the Mark Rubio rally on and certainly um you know, President or then candidate Trump's Republican uh, opposition, the people who are running for the nomination who are running against him, objected to that, you know, loudly, as did Hillary Clinton when she was running against him. So it's re- and it, uh, amongst those who was doing it was CNN. I agree. And I think that's a legitimate criticism. Um, you know, I was in Europe the whole time, up the run up to the election in 2016, and I was watching CNN International, which was not quite as obsessive in covering Trump as I think it was doing domestically. But absolutely, I mean, the man got tons and tons and tons of, of free and largely uncritical publicity. Um, I think, you know, maybe he thought it was just going to keep on continuing like that. But I think it's it's a legitimate criticism to say that the press did not give all these candidates a fair shake. And, um, you know, now we're reaping uh, the consequences of that with a president who just doesn't seem to understand that the role of the press is to oversee what the president is doing, not just be his public relations arm. Right. And, and certainly, you know, I think your point about just about every single candidate, certainly every president has been upset about the kinds of coverage they've gotten. Certainly, the Clinton campaign was livid uh, for what they saw as the lack of reporting on the fact of, of Russian meddling in, right. you know, in, in the election, that that got buried under the continued email situation and, and the email server situation as well as the continued investigations with the Anthony Weiner link. And they felt that the mainstream press handed the election or was one of the reasons that, that Donald Trump won, which and, is and, – and let's not even talk about the Bernie Sanders campaign and, and his supporters and the feeling that he was completely marginalized and misrepresented. I mean, the point is, there's plenty for everybody to dislike in the way the election and you know the run-up to it was covered. And I'm not here to defend all of that coverage or to suggest that the balance was, was correct. But that's behind us now. And I think we need to be looking at what I see as a really serious situation, which is a president that seems to have contempt for the press. The role of the press supports dictators and autocrats around the world who murder the press, and that his supporters seem to think that's just fine. I I mean, I, I don't know what to say other than I think we are really in a crisis if the public as a whole does not think that the role of a free press is to keep an eye on what the president is up to, not just, uh, you know, give him favorable publicity for whatever he's doing. And and in terms of that, you know, it, it remains to be seen what can happen. And, and you know, your, your point about, um, you know, sort of Vladimir Putin, I actually, a friend of mine from high school's brother was the editor of Forbes, Russia, and was gunned down in the street when he was, I mean, he was in his late 30s. 
Yeah, that's fascinating. These, these are not theoretical uh, concerns. They are real, and they've been going on for a very long time, not just in Russia, but in other countries, too, that, that President Trump appears to embrace, uh, the Philippines, Turkey. Um, this is serious, and I think it has obviously symbolic importance because in other countries around the world where we have traditionally said, you know, the president may not like the way the press covers him, but he supports the idea of a free press. I'm not sure we can say that at this moment, and I think we are ceding moral ground uh, in in the this whole question about what's going to be the future of the democratic structures around the world. And, and you know, people who've been at, at rallies, and this is actually sort of nothing new, because I, I remember going back to like the Republican convention, I think it was like 1992 in Pat Buchanan, um, I think it was in Houston, you know, kind of the, the press was all sort of in... Uh, you know, obviously, instead of one group all together at the convention floor, and at one point, uh, it was Buchanan who led you know this chant at the news media, and this is a, again a long time ago, 1992, saying "Tell the truth," and right. and and you know the reporters actually get called out, and I I, I get it, we're tough, <laughs> but you get called out, and certainly Trump did does that at at all of his rallies, both in the campaign and he's continuing to do it right now. And I remember the rally that was held here just a couple of days before the election. There was somebody walking around with a large sign with a noose around it with CNN right. written on it. Uh, and there were taunts directed at at the news media. I mean, we're big people, but, you know, it, it was it was ugly. I mean, I felt fine, but I think that there were some other people um, – perhaps some younger reporters who felt a little intimidated, who had never been in that situation. And and it's absolutely true. And it is it is a tactic of those in totalitarian governments to try to marginalize and undermine the press. Um, you know, this is not a new phenomenon. It works very successfully. And you and I have discussed before that, that I think that there have been forces for a long time on both the left and the right that have tried to undermine public confidence in the press. I mean, it, it's fine to say the press doesn't always do things the way we would like to do, that they're not perfect. And that's fine. But to basically question the the need for an independent voice to report critically on government, I, I, that is just for me, to me incomprehensible. And I'm not sure where we're going with this. All right. Doesn't look like it's going to stop anytime soon. Well, listen, Jane Kirtley, as always, thank you so much for your insights this evening. It was a pleasure. Thank Absolutely. you. All right. Yeah, it is uh, fascinating stuff uh, to see what happens. And it, it's interesting. I don't see this going away, though. And I think the president seems to draw energy off of it. I think CNN did make some mistakes with that story that they had to retract. I think, as Professor Curtley pointed out, what they did in terms of the use of uh, how they reported on this person who apparently put this video together, not not the, the smoothest way to do it at all. But uh, obviously some troubling dynamics here. And uh, one can only see the next chapter. The, the next chapter may, in fact, be uh, – Donald Trump Jr., who has put on his Instagram tonight uh, a, a image or a video that shows Trump shooting down a plane. Uh, obviously, it's a fake video of a shoot down a plane that's labeled CNN. Uh, the latest. What can I say? All right, folks. Um, it is 828 in the Twin Cities. Um, we do have to take a break. Um We'll give you some weather. I do want to let you know that normally at this hour we do chat with Professor David Schultz. He is actually in Beijing uh, for two weeks. He's teaching there uh, at a university there, and I can't wait to talk to him when he gets back. So uh, that is where Professor Schultz is 
which is I think it's about a 14-hour time difference. So I guess he's – I guess it's the middle of the day there, I think. I think they're ahead of us. Um, I'll check into that. But anyway, let's take a quick break. We'll give you some weather. And then when we come back, there's a big birthday going on right now in Minnesota. Spam, 80 years old. I'll tell you what that means. We'll celebrate after this break, after weather here on News Radio 830 WCCO. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. It is 834 in the Twin Cities. Esme Murphy with you along with Kevin Reed until 9 o'clock. Well, guess what? It is Spam's 80th birthday. Not the email kind. Yes, Spam. That is now uh, a staple in 44 countries that is credited with helping get our fabulous World War II vets through the war. Uh, Certainly enormously popular in places like Hawaii. Uh, certainly the UK continues to be popular. And of course, right here in the good old US of A. Uh, joining me right now is Brian Lillis. He is the spam brand manager. Brian, have I said your name correctly? And do I have your title right? You do. That is correct. Okay. All right. Let me ask you, first of all, uh, are there any sort of special festivities going on for spam's 80th birthday? I know that you've got the spam museum in Austin. We do have a, a, a new building that we are in in downtown Austin that we we just opened up last year. And actually, last night, to celebrate the 80th birthday, we did have a big block party right out, right out in front of the museum in downtown Austin last night. So we, had, we did have a, a birthday celebration with a big birthday cake set up outside as well. All right. Let me ask you, how did Spam get its start? Well, Spam was started back in, in 80 years ago, 1937. It was, you know, one of the first convenient, moderately priced, and, and really great tasting meat products on the market. Uh, it was started, and, and as you even mentioned as well, where it really got a lot of the rise and its usage was through World War II, and we'd send it to a lot of the troops overseas and the Allied forces, and, and it just took off from there, and people continued to use it. They brought it back home with them and found new and exciting ways to use it as well. All right. So it really, so it was one, and when you think about it, folks, I mean, there just weren't sort of the canned foods just were not anywhere near as prevalent. And this was one of the first, and it was invented, I assume, right here in Minnesota. That is correct. Yep, right here in Austin, Minnesota. Uh, the, the president at the time of the, com- of the Hormel F- Foods Company was looking for a way to put meat into a can, um, came up with this iconic shape that we have in the square can, and, and it took off from there, and it's, and it's grown ever since. All right. And what was the role that you know of in in World War II? So as the U.S. entered World War II, SPAM played a crucial role overseas. With our allied forces that were fighting uh, in Europe, Hormel provided 15 million cans of food to troops each week. And so it immediately became a constant part of the soldiers' diets, and and it earned much a lot of praise, if you will, for feeding starving British and Soviet armies as well as the civilians. So it continues to enjoy success today because the promise of the Spam brand is the same as it was at its start back in 1937. Versatile, affordable protein um, that provides a way for a, a, a convenient way for a family to spice up their meals. All right. Uh, and, and what are what are some of the areas? Because apparently it's available in 44 countries. Are there are there some markets that are, that are bigger than 
you know, are, are big ones for spam? Yes. Uh, you know, continuing towards um, the Hawaii direction, if you will, the Asia Pacific region definitely sees uh, a huge usage of spam over there. Uh, the UK is obviously big as well, but, but in that Asia Pacific, Japan, the Philippines, Korea, it's, it's really big in, in Korea. It's given almost as a, as a gift, if you will, a prized possession over in that country too. Really? Okay. I know if you go to Hawaii and you go to like a convenience store and you know how here they'll sell the hot dogs at the convenience store, they'll have, I think it's called Spam Masubi. It's, it's like a Spam Sushi, which instead That's of the correct. fish, you've got Spam there and it's got the the, the rice, the sushi rice, and and the seaweed, and that's considered a snack, and everybody eats it. Um, it's enormously that, yeah. popular. And is again, is that just sort of a vestige of World War II as well? It is, yeah. As as a lot of the GIs went across and then came back from the Asia Pacific area, and and some of them settled in, and it became part of their normal day to day eating, and it and it took hold in the Hawaiian Islands, and and they've continued to find. Uh, new and interesting ways. And as you talked about Spam Masubi as, as kind of the, uh, it's almost as infamous as a slice of New York, slice of pizza in New York or a hot dog in Chicago out there. You can find it at the convenience stores all over the place. All right. And so then, uh, when, when did Spam sort of kind of branch out into different, like, have there always been so many flavors of Spam? I mean, I. No, no, there haven't. Our, Our classic, the original Spam is still the, the number one, if you will, and the number one variety that people take uh, and eat. But, you know, our, our flavoring, our slight variations on that with our lower sodium and our less less fat, those types of items are still are, are popular as well. But then we started to get into some more regional flavors. Bacon has become a very popular one, just given the, the sheer rise in popularity of bacon as well. Uh, we have a Spam Teriyaki uh, a spam chorizo, so definitely some different flavors that we've been able to embed. Um, I wouldn't say that they're as great as the original, as the classic, but they definitely find their niche with a lot of our consumers. All right, and in terms of you know here in the U.S., um, you know a lot of people kind of crack jokes about spam, but does it remain popular here in the U.S.? It definitely does. I think one of the things that we've seen over the last few years, especially, is is the sheer number of, you know, as, and, and as we've gotten a lot of this uh, Hawaiian influence into our restaurants and that type of thing, these chefs um, that are putting Spam into their menu options and creating new and exciting different recipe ideas, and that's really helped to take hold. You know, we've gotten uh, a large number of um, news articles written about us that Bon Appetit Online, which you wouldn't normally think of as, as talking about spam, has even done articles about us. Just really, highlighting the and, way and what did they have to say? You know, they they highlighted a few different recipes and the way that you can be it can be so versatile and and convenient for making these different recipes and add some different flavor flavoring to those recipes as well. All right, so Bon Appetit has, has written you up as well, but 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 you're saying the basic spam is the one that that continues to. That continues that's, to drive the engine there. That's correct. That's the one that uh, that so many people, you know, over 110 million cans a year that are being consumed in the United States. So it's, 110 it's, million in the U.S. alone. We've since over the course of the 80 years, we've we've produced and sold over 8 billion cans of spam, and we're well on our way towards 9 billion cans as well. All right. 
and you know something? I have been past the spam museum, but I have never gone inside. I'm sorry to say. Oh. What what will we? What do you see in the spam museum and this additional building that you've got? Well, and it's a great location in downtown Austin. There, right on Main Street. Now that we've got it downtown, we've got a large number of displays uh, that talk all about the history, not just the history of the spam brand, but history of Hormel and how that came to be, and then how. The impetus for creating SPAM is, is a part of it as well. Um, over 14,000 square feet, all about this square meat that we've got there in Austin, Minnesota. And, and what are some of the exhibits there? Yeah, we've got, we've got one that talks about um, what, what we call the Can Central. So it's kind of the heart of the museum, and it showcases and highlights the different marketing campaigns that we've done, but also the people's love for that iconic shape of the can itself. We've got, as I mentioned, history, 1891 and beyond. So it talks about the history of the Hormel Foods Corporation. We've got a whole area about supporting our troops, which is really kind of what I alluded to earlier about the, the work that we did during World War II and how it helped our troops during the war. Basic information about the Spam brand. We've got an area where kids can come in and play, which during the Minnesota winters is a great place to have. And then, you know, talking about Hormel Foods today, just all the different brands that make up Hormel Foods as well. Right. Oh, and, and what percentage of roughly, do you have any idea, did Spam remain of Hormel Foods? Because obviously Hormel is, you know, you guys have so many products now. We do. We do. It's, it's still a large part of the overall portfolio of products. One of the great brands that Hormel has, uh, 80 years strong and continuing to rise in popularity and usage across the country and across the, around the world. Right. And you also have all these, I'm on your website here. <laughs> you actually have, uh, are, do people really buy all these spam products? I mean, everything from hockey jerseys to umbrellas <laughs> to t-shirts. Yeah. Uh, people, the, the spam fans are amazing. They love our brand and they love to showcase our brand and, and find ways to wear our merchandise. And yes, if you come down to Austin, we have it. Not only do we have it, have the merchandise online, we actually have a shop connected right there with the museum, so you can come down and and try the apparel on, so you can wear it out the door. <laughs> You've got the spam boxer shorts and, and everything. I mean, why is it that that? I mean, you you have other products as well. You've got luncheon meats. I think you've got. Uh, mashed potatoes. I mean, you've got all kinds of things. What is it about this particular item? Uh, I mean, you have a whole museum de- dedicated to this this particular item. What is it about this particular item? We do. And I think a lot of it harkens back to this nostalgia as well. So many of our consumers grew up on the product and then they're in turn taking it and, and sharing it with their family and showcasing it in their uh, different meal items and that type of thing. So the idea that you can see that can and know, yes, I can remember what what that smell was like when it was in the griddle and, and when it was sizzling in the pan and know what I could expect then when I bit into it. And that's what I want to be able to share and showcase my love for the brand as well. Okay. And actually we have a question from a listener. Should we put the listener on here? Oh, okay. Well, the question the question from the listener is this. How, this is a really good question. How did spam get its name? That is a great question, and that's one that everybody likes to ask. There's, there's some history there in terms of on New Year's Eve back in 1936, Jay Hormel, who was president of the company at the time, hosted a party and asked 
his different guests to submit their most creative name for his new luncheon meat. And an actor from New York named Kenneth Dagano was the lucky one to win $100 for his suggestion of the name Spam. Now, there's some speculation on where he came up with the name. Some say it was inspired by taking the first two letters of spice and the last two letters of ham and combining it to call Spam. But this has never actually been confirmed. Okay, so so it was an actor and it was a contest for $100 and $100 back in, uh, what was it, 1930? 1936, New Year's Eve, 1936, Okay, and, and before we rolled off, yeah. And still in, in the middle of the Depression, Yeah, that's that's a fair amount of money. <laughs> okay. Yes, and it, 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 it's part of the uniqueness of the brand as well in that there's uh, some a little bit uh, of uniqueness to the name and how, how it was created as well. And how, I mean, because so this is only 1936. I mean, how, do you have any idea how they quickly got grew so quickly or, or got into the, the military contracts? Because, I mean, that's not a lot of time. No, it, it wasn't. I think that there were... I mean, and this is a, a different age with, you know, not the kind of automation you've got now. I mean, how did they get so big so quickly in terms of supplying, a, a, you know, the Allied Army? You know, the, the company itself, Hormel Foods, has been around for 125 years. So, only having spam around for 80 of those years, they were definitely in tune with innovating and finding new ways to create processes to be able to ramp this up. And the creation of the spam lines and being able to create the spam brand was no exception. You'll have to come down to the museum to, to go through the World War II area and, and find out more about how we, uh, how the troops felt about spam. I think most of them would say, even uh, Eisenhower himself would say, thank you. It, it definitely helped us, but I think we're full now on our spam. So it was a way that... <laughs> but, was, but I mean, it's, it's remarkable that, that, that so quickly they were able to, yeah. to, to get this product out. And was it all manufactured in Austin? At the time, yes. We now have three different manufacturing facilities, um, one in Austin, one down in Fremont, Nebraska, and one in Dubuque, Iowa. But at the time, yes, it was, it was primarily made in Austin, Minnesota. All right. I mean, just to be able to, to launch it on, on really sort of a global basis back then is really a remarkable feat by, by the Hormel company as well. Um, one of the things that you have on your website, uh, well, you information about the varieties and everything like that, but you also have a lot of recipes. I mean, do you have any idea how often people are accessing these recipes and looking at them? You know, it's it's pretty regularly. I will say that um, with the in this day and age, the idea of searching for recipes online, finding finding recipes online as to what to make for dinner that evening, that's definitely why we've got a large number of recipes that are out there. Uh, I would say too, we've been able to tie that in at the museum. I know that there are kiosks there where you can email yourself different different spam recipes right from the museum as well, and we've had. You know, over the course of the first year that we've been open downtown, over 100,000 people have come into the museum. And, and I think we've had in the tens of thousands of email recipes that have been emailed out. So we definitely know that people are looking for ways, unique ways to be able to enjoy this product as well. well that's, that's so interesting. Yeah. And, and also the, the Star Tribune had and your recipes actually, I think, are, are just the ones I'm looking at are pretty modern ones that, that I think would appeal to a family with like, you know, noodles and tacos right. and, and things that you could use, you know, uh, pretty traditionally. I, I don't know if you saw the Star Tribune with their retro recipes. And I, I, I spread on that, which, which was, you know, recipes that obviously were from another era. 
another era. Yes, it was a unique uh, article to talk about all the different ways and see how how the usage of the spam brand has continued to change through the course of time as well. So, yes, it's definitely something that, you know, even the spam musubi recipe that we have out there is a way to showcase and how to use it uh, is another fun one. We we tend to use it a lot with kids and because it's a fun one that they can put together and put their own touch to it as well. All right. And if you go down to the uh, library or, or the museum, sorry, in Austin, can you buy some spam? Absolutely. Yes, we have all 15 varieties that are available there, along with those boxer shorts that you'd like to be able to purchase and put on and and wear out of there as well. Yeah, I I mean, and how many different items do you have with the Spam logo on them? Oh, I, you know, I don't even know what our count is right now. We've got uh, a wide variety that are available both in the physical shop as well as online, too. Okay, and when when is the Spam Museum open down there? Uh, Spam Museum is open seven days a week, so we're open uh, most days, and I think um, all the way until, if I bring my, my hours up here correctly, um, right now in the summer months, we're usually open until about 6 p.m., only open for certain hours on Sunday, but you can come down uh, and most days and we'll be open. All right. And, and, have you. and check out the website. Well, listen, uh, we certainly appreciate uh, Brian Lillis, uh, Spam Brand Manager. And have you been the Spam Brand Manager for a long time? No, not – not. Uh, if a year is a long time on this brand, then I would say yes. I've been with the company a, a lo- lo- longer time than that, though. Okay. Well, thank you very much for uh, talking all things Spam with us this evening. You bet. Thank you very much. All right, folks. Uh, all things Spam. Well, we got some time here. Maybe you have – your own spam recipe. Uh, I'll go over. You can give us a call, 651-989-9226, 1-866-989-9226. Do you have a spam recipe or a spam story? Uh, 651-989-9226, 866-989-9226. And I will actually pull up my text. Do we have a call here, Brian? Oh, no. Or Kevin, sorry. Okay. I'm sorry. I thought he was signaling that we did have a call here. Just wondering if you had any particular recipes that you'd like. I'm going to read some of the recipes. Perfect. Perfect. All right. <laughs> this is from the Star Tribune, which I thought did a nice job. The Spam Upside Down Pie. These are their retro throwback glorious recipes for Spam. It is a Spam Upside Down Pie. Uh, the next one is Spam Birds. And it's just wrap a slice of Spam around some stuffing, fastened with a toothpick, brown in the oven, and somehow this is a bird. I'm serious. This is a real recipe. Spam and macaroni loaf. Spam Fiesta peach cups. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, I'm, golly I'm, I'm not Moses. a big meat and fruit guy, so that's probably Spam, not And me. I'm sure it's like the peach cups. Remember the peach cups with the heavy syrup? Blah, oh, is it peach blah. and not pine? Because I know ham and pineapple is a big thing, but it's peach and not pineapple? It's peach. Mm, I, okay. Okay, I get Well, like ham and ham and ham and yeah. the pizza. That, okay. Yeah, my wife's big on that. That's not one of mine, but yeah. The, the Spam and pineapple or the ham and pineapple? The ham and pineapple. That so. is really good on a pizza. I am mm-hmm. with your wife absolutely mm-hmm. all the way. Uh, but apparently... Um, this is the, these are the throwback recipes, the throwback re- recipes. Um, all right. Uh, <laughs> Spam Fiesta Peach Cups. Spam and banana fritters. Mm. Try luscious fried bananas with sliced Spam. Mm. Mm. <laughs> mm. Spam and cheese ribbon loaf. 
Uh, tender pure spam joins with zesty cream cheese mixture for the memorable eating. Well, I can okay, I can see okay. it's like ham and I gotcha. cream cheese. I gotcha, I gotcha. Mm. Spam and limas. You know, lima beans are are probably my least favorite food in in the universe because spam and a Spanish sauce of canned tomatoes, onions, peppers, celery leaves, sugar, salt, and lard. Mm-hmm. Will help lima beans become edible. Bacon there you go. Fat okay. Right there. okay. It's, uh, everything's good with bacon fat. Um, planked spam. Okay. Score a whole spam and rub with brown sugar. Kind of like I'm thinking ham here. Surrounded on the plank, like a plank of wood with tomato slices, capped with large mushrooms doused in butter. Butter makes everything taste better. Bake 25 minutes in hot oven. Then ring with mashed potatoes and slip back into the oven for quick browning. Bring to the table, plank and all, and be greeted with cheers. Yeah, that's, that's good. That sounds like a low-fat recipe to me. <laughs> spam Brittany. Okay, bake spam with marmalade and apples. This sounds very Brit. Sounds good to me. Spam, apples, orange marmalade, and whole cloves all baked together. So easy, mm-hmm. of course. A baked bean spamwich. Husband's home for lunch. <laughs> this is from an old advertising thing. Pamper him like this. With this messy sandwich that will drop sticky baked beans all over his lap. Oh, and don't forget to serve your sexist sandwich with this equally sexist side of a man-style salad of canned peaches and cottage cheese. Well, I could do without the canned peaches and cottage cheese. You know but something? The I remember the canned Ooh. peaches. Oh, and well, I do. Cheese. Oh, I do. I'm 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 not that young. I remember them well. Okay. My dad loved that stuff, but no. Okay. Um. Uh. Bonus. Not a recipe, but still super odd. This is all according to the Star Tribune and their throwback uh, spam recipes. Span spokescouple Gracie Allen and George Burns did a lot for the canned meat, including this skit. Gracie, if a strange man offered to buy you a lunch, what would you say, Burns asked. No, the answer isn't get away from me, weirdo, you weirdo. Allen replies, spam. Okay. I give up. And on that note... But well, yeah, the uh, the spam and baked bean sandwich. I could go for that. The peach and and cottage I, I cheese. I could see is not in, in, thing, in like so. scrambled eggs or something like that. I, yeah, scrambled I eggs. Yeah, I, I don't, in I an don't. omelet. You know, instead of ham in an omelet, you could right. use spam. You right. know, with the vegetables right. and the Denver omelet. Right. I and guess then, that would be an Austin omelet then, maybe. An Austin omelet, exactly. And uh, the um, some of the recipes with I said the tacos and uh, you know if you're yeah. hard pressed to kind of make something for kids or the pasta, I think it just. Fine. I wasn't aware that there were that many different types of spam, but I've learned a lot more about spam than I knew before. Mm-hmm. So edifying here. No pun intended. All right, folks. I do want to give a shout out to the producer of this show, Susan Blanche. I know this was kind of a hard week to put together with that 4th of July holiday in the middle of the week. Uh, but as always, a great show. And uh, she's been doing such a great job with Jordana and all the people filling in. On the afternoon show, so I want to give a shout out to Susan, and also a big shout out as well to uh, the spam recipe guy, Kevin. Thank you, and also Kevin Reed, and also to Jonathan Lowe. So keep it right here, folks. You are listening to News Radio eight three zero WCCO right now in the Twin Cities. It is eight fifty seven and eighty degrees. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only twenty-five dollars a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile, get four iPhone 15s on us, and four lines for twenty-five bucks per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. 
Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com.